How you doing out there? Amen. Get your Bibles out. What a great time of worship. I don't know about you, but uh, the Holy Spirit, I feel, is moving and ministering and encouraging. We've been praying for you guys, that God would refresh you and restore anything that the enemies try to steal. This morning, we're in Micah chapter 6. We're going to finish up our series, God willing, today in Micah chapter 6. I'm going to read you verses 3 through 8 in just a minute. And we are going to jump into the last part of our series on what's good. So, Father, we thank you this morning for this time of worship. We thank you for this beautiful weather. Lord, I know that that's a gift from you, Lord. You push back the rains for us and so we could come out and enjoy your presence today. And Father, I pray that the word would go forth in power and the demonstration of your Holy Spirit, that it would encourage us, that it would allow us, Lord, to reflect and to stretch and to grow so that we can be more useful in your hands as a people. Father, I ask all this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Micah. Chapter 6, verse 3 through 8. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now when Balak, king of Moab, counseled with Balaam, son of Baor, answering him from Shedem to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil, Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. One last time, verse 8, the last point of verse 8, our target for this week. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We've been in this series, and Micah has challenged us. The Old Testament prophet reaches into the New Testament and hits us exactly where we are. We understand that as God's children, we have an obligation not just to admire or desire or hope for justice, but we are personally required to do justice. I hope that you've been chewing on that and allowing the Holy Spirit to calibrate in your own life, in your own heart, what it is for you to do justice, that you would treat others with respect and kindness, that you would treat others with dignity as you would want to be treated, that you would realize that all of us are made in the image of God and we have an inherent stamp of God on our existence and that we should treat one another justly. Last week, we found out it wasn't enough to be a fan of mercy. We actually have to love it. Well, why do we have to love it? Because only when we love mercy will it come out in our everyday circumstances. Only when we love mercy will it become a theme in our lives. You and I need to love mercy because we need mercy. And as we sow mercy, we fill up our mercy account. 
This week, Micah continues at the last part of verse 8, and he communicates what the Lord requires of us. The scripture says he's told you, O man, what is good. He hasn't hidden it from us. It's not a mystery. He's told us plainly what is good. Lord, what do you require of me? Micah 8 answers that question. We talked about doing justice. We talked about loving mercy. But now we need to talk about walking humbly with our God. The last part of this verse can be a little bit obscure, hard to grasp. But I believe by the Holy Spirit today, he's going to open it up for us so that we can make ready application to the truth of it to our lives. What's good? What does the Lord require of us? That we walk humbly with our God. The requirement in this text starts off with a reference to our spiritual walk. Notice the prophet says, walk humbly with your God. Now, let's explore that. What does it mean to walk? Life can be seen in a very biblical sense as a walk. You and I are born and we walk through this life. We're on a journey. And start to finish, we are walking. It is a walk because it's a slow journey. I don't know about you, sometimes the years seem to go fast, sometimes they seem to go slow, but all in all, life seems to be a slow journey, a walk. It's a slow journey that's on a path. God has put us on a path, and that path leads to a finish line. Many choose different paths in life, but the path that God has put us on will lead to a finish line. When I preach at funerals, I often say things like, Life is a dash between two dates. You're born one date, you die another date. In between those two dates is a dash. Life is a dash. It's a walk. It's a journey. From cradle to grave, from our birth to our death, we are on a spiritual journey. How we live, how we think and act and feel, how we spend our time and energy, who we serve, all of this dictates the outcome of our journey, the finish line of our walk. You know, unbelievers that don't know Jesus, they're walking around, they're running around, they're bouncing around. In fact, they're probably listening to this right now at the supermarket, at the gas station, on the golf course, and they hear this church making a bunch of noise about what? It's about Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But as an unbeliever, many of us, before we came to Christ, we walked around, we bounced around, we ran around looking for the answers to life's questions, the, the questions of life. Why am I here? Where did we come from? Is there anything after this? What's the meaning of life? You see, there are many on a walk, and they're confused, and they're trying to find answers. Believers don't walk like that. Believers, those who know Jesus, those who have accepted him as Savior and Lord, we aren't just wandering around. We aren't just bouncing around. We're on a spiritual journey, a specific spiritual walk, the steps of which are ordered by the Lord. Our steps are ordered by God. Our paths are ordered by the Holy Spirit. We are on a walk that leads to a conclusion of the ending of our lives and the beginning of our life in eternity with Jesus. Christ. The difference between a believer's walk and an unbeliever's walk is stark and vivid. So how's your spiritual walk going? Micah says we need to walk humbly with our God. It's time for us as the people of God to consider our spiritual walk. 
the busyness of life and the distractions of life have ground to a halt in this time of pandemic, and it's been an opportunity for us to examine our ways, to look in our lives and say, how am I walking? Am I investing my time and my energy in a way that will produce spiritual fruit? Am I investing myself just in the temporary and neglecting the eternal? How's your walk going today? Is Jesus still your first love? Or is there another? Do you still live to please him? Or do you please another? Is there oil in your lamp today? I hope so, because the bridegroom is coming back very soon. I hope there's oil in your lamps today. If there's no oil in your lamp, it's time to get in the secret place. It's time to catch on fire again once again. It's time to get excited about the kingdom of God. It's time to fall in love with Jesus again. How's your spiritual walk going? Now's the time to grow really close to Jesus. You say, Pastor, are we in the last of the last days? I think it's safe to say we're in the last of the last days. We see the signs all around us. Jesus could come at any moment. It's not time to wander. It's not time to bounce around. It's not time to be in the flesh. But it's time to be really close to Jesus to forsake all others, to walk with him every day, all day, as we see the day approaching. Come on, let me hear your horns or an amen today. Amen. Consider your walk. Micah tells us that we are to walk humbly with our God. So let's look at the second concept of that statement, the concept of humility. Now, humility is a topic we hear a lot about because it's an essential thing for a Christian to be humble. Nobody likes a self-righteous, arrogant Christian. In fact, those things just don't go well together. There's a humility that must be part of us as we are partakers of grace, as we have been saved by the sacrifice of Calvary. We need to understand that humility relates closely to our spiritual walk. So we've talked about our spiritual walk today, and, and Micah adds in the component of humility. Humility is one of those things you really can't brag about having, amen? In fact, there was a pastor who was given a, a, a medallion from his church, said the most humble pastor, and they gave them this, this little medallion, and the next week he wore it to church, and they took it away from him. Come on, that's funny. You can still laugh in a pandemic, right? Humility is one of those things you can't brag about having. A very confused man once said, if there's one thing I'm better at than everybody else, it's being humble. <laughs> you guys are a little slow. It's hot. I know. It's hot. Take a drink. Take a breath. Have a laugh. Webster's Dictionary defines humility as freedom from arrogance and pride. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Think about that. Freedom from arrogance and pride. That sounds refreshing, doesn't it? To be free. You see, the, the proud person is not a free person. He's in bondage, what? To his own ego, to his own inflated self of sense worth, to, to the fact that he wants everybody to speak to him a certain way, treat him a certain way, think of him a certain way. Arrogance and pride is, a, is bondage. It's not freedom. And Webster's defines humility as the freedom from arrogance and pride. The biblical definition of humility is a conglomeration of many Hebrew and Greek words, and it comes down to this. If you look at the concept of humility in Scripture, 
Humility is having a low state of mind in the sense that it allows us to have a modest view of our own self-importance. Did you hear that? A low state of mind in the sense it allows us to have a modest view of our own self-importance. What is humility? It's being free from arrogance and pride. It's having a low enough opinion of ourselves to have a modest view of our own self-importance. That, that's why the Bible says to consider others better than yourself. Well, what does that do? It allows us to have that lower state of mind, that it's not me first all the time, but it's about others. It's not me first all the time, but it's about Jesus. It's God first all the time. Then it's others. Then somewhere down the list, it's me. It's real quiet today. Humility is something that all of us need to work into our lives and pray that the Holy Spirit works into our lives. Now, listen. That definition of humility will get us a long way, but we need to understand, according to Micah, according to the scripture, humility is the defining mark of those whose walk is pleasing to God. If our walk, our spiritual journey, is going to be pleasing to God, it needs to be marked with humility. That's why the text is very clear. It says that we are to walk how? Humbly with our God. So humility is the mark that we're looking for. It's important to note that God did not ask us to walk first productively. He didn't say, my children, walk efficiently with me. No, he didn't say, children, come to me and walk intellectually with me. Walk philosophically with me. All of those things have their place in our Christianity, but God has required us first not to come with efficiency and productivity in the intellectual sense or the philosophical sense, but first of all, to walk humbly with him. Humility has to be first. And here's three reasons why humility has to be first in our walk. Only humility enables us to forsake other masters so we can put God first in other things. See, if we have other masters in our life, and we're going to talk about those in a little bit. But if we're not humble, we'll serve other things besides God. If we're not humble, we, we won't forsake our own idols, but we'll try to serve them and add God to it. And listen to me, humility is the only thing that enables us to serve one master, to serve God alone, and to put him first in all things. Number two, only humility allows us to walk completely in God's favor and grace. You see, God has favor for us as children of God. Can someone say amen? God has poured out grace upon us. And it's a beautiful thing to walk in grace, to walk in favor. But many times our lack of humility cuts the flow of God's favor in our life. Many times the lack of our humility cuts the grace of God in our lives. James 4, 6 through 7 says this, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says... God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Look what James is saying. God does what to the proud? He resists them. Think about that. With all the obstacles, all the hurdles, all the things we have to deal with in life, do we really want the God of heaven resisting us? No. I don't know about you, but I need God's favor in my life. I don't need him resisting me. I don't know about you, but I need God's grace in my life. I don't need him resisting me. Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? But if God is against us because of pride, 
We're done before we start. Only humility allows us to walk in the complete favor and grace of God. Every ounce of pride pushes back the blessing and the favor of God from our lives. It causes God to resist us. Why? Because he can work with sin. He can work with our shortcomings. He can work with our weakness, but he can't deal with our pride. Pride is the only thing that ever got anyone kicked out of heaven. Satan said, I will be like the Most High, and he fell like lightning from heaven. Pride is the only thing that will destroy the deposit of God in the child of God. We need to drive pride far from us. Number three, the third reason why humility has to be first, is only humility equips us to deal with our own flesh effectively. Now, if we're being honest today, all of us deal with the flesh, None of us are even close to being perfect and close to being completely delivered from the flesh. When we say the flesh, really it's a Bible concept that is talking about the old nature, the sinful nature, the fallen nature. And all of us deal with it. And only humility will equip us to deal with it effectively. Romans 8, 6 through 8, listen to this. Paul writing to the church, he says, For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh, listen, is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What a powerful scripture. Paul is telling us here what? That our flesh, our sinful nature, it's hostile to God. And that when we're in the flesh, we can't please God. So the reason that we have to have humility is to put our flesh in its place, to crucify it daily, to allow it to come under subjection to the Spirit so that we can walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So God won't resist us, but He'll bless us so that we are not hostile towards the things of God, so that we we can please him. What a powerful, powerful concept it is, understanding that humility is the very thing that allows us to walk humbly with our God. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says this about the flesh. Listen to this. The reason we need humility so badly to put our flesh in order is one of the reasons is found in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Casting down imaginations, again, Paul says, writing to the Corinthian church, and every high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What Paul is describing there is us taking the thoughts and the attitudes and the expressions of the flesh and captivating them and bringing them under the power and the authority of Christ to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? What he's saying there is that if we're going to keep our flesh under control, we have to even cast down our own imaginations, our own thoughts, our own desires. Did you ever have something just pop into your mind and, and, and it almost scared you? Come on, anybody want to be real in church this morning? I know we're outside. But did, did you ever have a thought and you looked around, where did that come from? My goodness. And we wonder, how could I think such a thing? How could such a... Listen, that, that's from the flesh. Our flesh is hostile towards God. And if we're going to crucify it, if we're going to keep it down, then we have to be willing to cast down our own thoughts, our own desires, the things that we come up with. Listen, that takes humility. 
When, when I think a thought and I have to say, you know what, that, that thought's from my flesh, and I'm going to be humble enough to confess that it doesn't line up with God's will or God's word, and so I'm going to cast it down, and I'm going to, instead of think what I think, I'm going to think what God thinks. Come on, I understand to the world this is foolishness, but to the child of God, we know we have to take those impulses and those thoughts and those desires, and we have to captivate them. That takes humility. Listen, most people are enamored with themselves. They're, they're uh, so enamored with their own thoughts. Many people just like to hear the sound of their own voice. <laughs> so for us to say, you know what? I need to decrease and he needs to increase. It's the humility that John the Baptist had and we need it. It's the only thing that allows us to crucify that flesh daily. Now let's move on here. The second concept of humility we looked at, we understand we're on a spiritual walk. We understand humility is the thing that allows our walk to please God. But let's ask another question here. What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? And most of us, we, we learn by example. We're visual. We need to see it, and then we can do it. So what does it look like? What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? Walking humbly with our God means that we've embraced the level of personal humility that has freed us up so that we could put God first in everything. Are you getting this today? The humility has to come. It has to be in our walk. Why? Because it'll, it's the only thing that's going to free us up to put God first. Now listen, there's no shortage of people or groups of people or organizations who want us to live to please them. You know this. There are many out there who want you to live to please them. Now let's look at a couple possibilities. We can live to please other people. There are many people in our world, maybe people sitting here today, that are caught in a trap of living to please someone else other than God. We can be caught in a trap to live to please our boss and become a slave to our jobs. We can be caught in the trap to, to have to bow to family and expectations of family and what they require of us to do instead of what God requires. We could be trapped in pleasing our spouse. If we have a spouse that is difficult to please and demanding and controlling, now don't raise your hand, this is not the altar call, just look straight ahead. But there are those who live for their spouse and they put their spouse above God and make an idol out of their spouse. We can live to please our friends. Oh, what are my friends going to think? What are my friends going to say? We can live to please our peers. And all of these groups would love if we would live to please them. There are no shortage of other people who would love us to please them. We can also, number two, live to please the world. This world demands allegiance. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but the war drums of the world have been beating against the church, and they demand compliance with their standard. In fact, our culture has much less tolerance for Christianity today than it perhaps any time in our history, and the world wants us to live to please the world. And culture says, bow the knee to culture. Bow the knee to what we call normal. Bow the knee to our philosophy and our views on, on righteous living, on what constitutes sin, on, on what sexuality should be. And culture demands that we bow. There's, we're in the age of political correctness, which is nothing more than demonic manipulation that says you have to say a certain word or not say a certain word or think a certain thing or act a certain way. 
And if you step out of line, you'll be socially shamed. Now we're to the point where if you don't fall in line with their mantra, they'll pull you out of your car and beat you for it. It's a sad time in America. It's almost time to take a stand. I hope we're praying because the time is growing short. We can live to please the world and its humanistic philosophy. We can live to please the world with its new age spirituality, which is devoid of truth and which undermines the cross of Christ. This world demands that we live to please it. But every good Christian who loves Jesus must refuse the world and live for Christ. There's no shortage of groups who want us to live to please them. Number three, we can live to please ourselves. This is the most destructive choice we could make altogether. Self is an idol, and we can spend a lifetime pampering and pleasuring and, and appeasing ourself. And there are many people who live for decades and just serve themselves. They chase after the wind of materialism. They chase after money. And they chase after uh, fame and power. And all of these things are elusive. It's a chasing after the wind. And yet they never seem to come to the place where they can please themselves. Self is an idol. And self is an idol that's unquenchable. We can waste a lifetime and an eternity trying to serve the idol of self. What an exhaustive way to live when it's me first in everything. The Bible says it's better to give than receive. The Bible teaches us that it's in serving God that we find our significance. The Bible tells us that in laying down our lives, that's how we truly find our lives. And if we seek to save our lives, we'll lose our lives. So serving self, though a viable option, and the choice of many is a destructive choice. We can live to please others. We can live to please the world. We can live to please ourselves. Or number four, the only real choice, we can live to please God. We can live to serve him. We can put him first in all things. We can say the kingdom of God is first in our lives. Hebrews 11.5 describes a man named Enoch. It says this, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. So here's this man, Enoch, who was born of a woman and walked the earth, but he walked closely with God to the point that he pleased God. And what did God do? God snatched him up from the earth without him tasting death. Now, if you study the book of Revelation, you'll see that Enoch is coming back again as one of the two witnesses that never taste death. Him and Elisha will come back. But God plucked him up, and here's why. It says, and he, he, he was not found because God took him up. Listen, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. You see, it is possible to live a life that denies self that carries its cross, that will refuse to serve the idols of this world. It is possible to live a life that is pleasing to God if we choose to do so and we reject everything else but his kingdom and the king and, the, and Jesus. If we'll reject all of these distractions, we can live to please him. Church, more now than ever, we need to live to please God. The world is demanding that you bow. The world is demanding that you bow your knee to Baal. This world is demanding that we fall in line. 
But the real children of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit will never fall in line with the world. Because we're in this world, but we're not of this world. It's time for us to be so distinct from the darkness around us that our light is blinding and offensive to everything that is wicked. It is time for us to be so in love with Jesus and so close to him that we become intolerable to those who refuse to acknowledge Christ. What's the opposite side of the coin to walking humbly with your God? Mike has asked us to walk humbly, so we examine our walk. We're on a spiritual journey. We understand humility is what allows our walk to be pleasing to God. And now we understand what it, what it means to choose to walk with God and reject the idols that would have us follow after them. But we need to look at the opposite side of the coin. What is the opposite side of the coin to walking humbly with your God? We defined humility as freedom from arrogance and pride that allows us a lowly state of mind and, and allows us to see our self-importance in perspective. So the opposite side of the coin to walking humbly with God is this. It's approaching God with a sense of arrogance and entitlement and pride that comes from an overinflated view of ourselves. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying this morning. Please don't tune out on me now. This is what we're here for. Approaching God in arrogance and entitlement and pride. And it comes from what? An overinflated view of ourselves. People who approach God without humility say things like this. God, what have you done for me lately? It's not enough that he saved us. It's not enough that he cleansed us by the blood. It's not enough that he's forgiven all of our sins. It's not enough that he's written our name in the Lamb's book of life. It's not enough that he gave us spiritual gifts and that he's filled us with the Holy Spirit. We have to come to him and say, yeah, we know about all that, but, but, th but that's old news. What have you done for me lately? Now, it's quiet, but the truth is many people have, have felt like this in their hearts, and many people who call themselves Christians have this attitude that, you know, God, what have you done for me lately? And it's a wrong attitude. People who approach God without humility say things like this, God, I need you to meet all my demands and expectations. Many people come to God with demands and expectations, and God, I'll serve you if. And God, I'll do what you want me to do if. And listen to me. I want to say something really clear today. God doesn't owe any of us anything. In a generation, our generation has become so arrogant and so entitled that we even approach heaven with our demands and our expectations. People who approach God without humility say things like this. God, you've disappointed me. Everything didn't go my way. Now I'm angry at you, and it's made me lukewarm about serving you. What a dangerous condition to be in. At least we pretend that this doesn't exist in the church and kid ourselves. There are many in the body who have grown lukewarm. And why are they lukewarm? Because they're angry at God. And why are they angry at God? Because everything didn't go their way. And why is that making them angry? Because now they're disappointed because God didn't meet their demands and expectations. Do you see the trap here? The opposite side of the coin, approaching God without humility, is a dangerous way to approach God. People who approach God without humility demand a certain kind of church. The Bible warns us about this. 
People who approach God without humility demand a church that never talks about sin, only blessing and liberty and grace. Listen to me. I don't care how good the preacher looks. I don't care how much his suit costs. I don't care how shiny his shoes are or how big his church is or how comfortable his sanctuary is. If in a church the preacher never preaches a message that brings conviction, if the message is always grace, 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 and liberty, and blessing, and they never talk about sin, that's the type of church that is described as the Laodicean church. And it will destroy people because of their own ability to approach God in truth. People who approach God without humility demand a church that ignores or glosses over all the uncomfortable topics of Scripture. Listen, there are things in the Word of God that are uncomfortable for us to consider. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. But yet we don't hear too many messages about hell. We hear grace, 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 and and all of these things. And listen, Jesus warned us. Churches that ignore the uncomfortable topics of scripture are deceiving people and they are filling their houses with the lost and one day they'll stand before God and give an account. But people who don't have humility want churches that ignore the uncomfortable topics. What else do they want? They want churches that explain away sin instead of preaching repentance from it. Listen, we can't explain away sin. It doesn't matter how sophisticated or technologically advanced we are. Listen, sin is still sin. If the Bible says it's sin, it's sin, and we can't explain it away. The only remedy for sin is repentance. Churches that refuse to preach repentance and explain away sin are deceiving the multitudes, and they're heading for the cliff. People who approach God without humility demand churches that hold no one accountable preach messages without conviction, see no salvations. They resemble country clubs with life coaches instead of shepherds. They want speakers to tickle their ears and not cover uncomfortable topics and never demand repentance. Listen to me. It's time for the church to be the church. It's time for the church to stand up and preach the truth and love. It's time for every believer to walk the standard. Listen to me, saints. Listen to me full gospel center. It's not enough for me to stand up here and preach a message like this and for us to say amen. We've got to live this thing. We've got to take it out of the four walls, out of the parking lot. Now we're in the open air, but we need to bring this message everywhere. It's a message of repentance. It's a message that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. It's a message of hope. It's the gospel. It's the good news. We need to live it and to breathe it and to preach it for the time is short today. And we have a mandate from heaven to preach the gospel, to bring it to everyone and to make disciples. Help us, God. Amen. What's good today? What's good today? That we do justice. Not that we just talk about justice or consider justice or understand what justice is, but that we actually do it. What's good today? That we love mercy. We have to be more than a fan of mercy. We have to love it so it comes out of every pore of our existence so people feel it in us and we store it up for ourselves. We have to walk humbly with our God. I want to take an opportunity here this morning that 
in this open air, as we sit on our beach chairs, as we sit in our cars, just to bow our heads and to be quiet and to consider the fact that there may be some pride in our lives, some religious pride. Maybe we've looked at the world and go, well, look how they're acting and we've been judgmental. But the thing is, how do we expect the world to act if the church hasn't got its act together? Maybe there's pride in us that needs to go. I want us to just be silent and spend some time in the presence of God and allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to where we need to recalibrate our lives. Are you practicing habitual sin? Repent from it. Get freedom. Allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from unrighteousness and to walk right with our God, to be humble before him, not to pretend we're all right when we're not all right but to get right and be right by the blood of the Lamb. Let's take a moment in His presence. Father, it's pride that keeps us from repentance. It's pride that keeps us from getting real with you. It's pride that keeps us from addressing the issues that keep you at a distance in our lives. God, deliver us from pride. Give us a low enough state of mind that we could see our insignificance and to realize we need you so desperately. Father, drive pride from the life of every believer within the sound of my voice so that we can be closer to you, so that we can walk humbly with you. I close with this scripture. It's a description of the proud in the last days, and it marks the characteristics of how they'll act. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, We're in those days, we're in those times. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. God, as we see these things manifest before our eyes in our own generation, we pray that the church would be humble and strip the pride and walk a spiritual walk that's pleasing to God, that we would do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. I pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Give him praise this morning. Amen.